This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postdoclips, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We're a team of PhD students at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world and we'll be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study. This socially distant episode is brought to you from our own homes, not breaking any lockdown rules here. In this episode, we're talking to people on the front line of the battlefield that is coronavirus. In the first part, Madeleine, that's me, will be interviewing her partner, Josh. That's me. Josh is a surgical trainee at a busy London teaching hospital. He's been redeployed to the Coronavirus Intensive Care Unit, ICU for short, and he's going to tell us about his work as a doctor on the coronavirus front line. So my first and most important question is, is it covid or COVID? <laughs> uh, good question. Uh, tomatoes, tomatoes. Uh, depends on your mood. Mm. Okay, well, I thought that might help me ask my next question without sounding like a bit of a plonker, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with COVID. So what's it like being on COVID ICU and working outside your specialty and all that sort of stuff? Good question. Um, so I'm not normally an intensive care doctor, and I think by the end of the COVID ICU response, I probably still won't be. Uh, but saying that, I'm normally a plastic surgical trainee uh, in my day job, but have been redeployed or moved to provide boots on the ground personnel on the COVID ICU front line. It's a sort of weird place to work at the best of times, but even more so at the moment. Um, we don't have the usual case mix of patients. It's really single disease. And the majority of our patients are much sicker than they normally are. So there's very few patients that are awake, sitting up, talking to you. The majority of them are in medically induced comas and intubated and ventilated with us taking over care of maybe one or more of their organs. Mm-hmm. And it's although it's really awesome to be part of this huge team responding to a, to a massive challenge, the, the like of which we've never seen before in the NHS or globally, um, breaking down the kind of tribes of medicine... It's a challenging environment to work in. You know, you're in your full PPE and communicating with others is is not as easy as it normally might be. Um, But it can be, if you're not careful, a little bit dehumanising. You don't have the kind of interaction that you'd normally have with patients. You don't have the interaction you might have with their families. It's very different and difficult to break bad news, for example, to relatives over the phone. Mm. Um, And sometimes uh, we're just... Well, almost always, the patients that I'm meeting for the first time are brought to us packaged in a medically induced coma, not talking, not interactive, and then we're often flipping them onto their front to prone them for a prolonged period of time to to help with their ventilation. And so it's it's a very unusual environment to work in and and not one that that is at all familiar to to even those doctors that come from an ICU background. There's been a lot of um, media attention about the lack of PPE, the personal protective equipment in in, um, in ICU and for doctors. Has that, has that been a problem for you at all? Uh, so I guess I've got to be careful with what I say here. I think I have been one of the lucky ones. I think when you work in a COVID ICU, you're certainly on the high on the priority list for NHS providers and the NHS distribution network. Um, equally, it's relatively easy for us to know when we need to be wearing PPE. You put it on for a session on the unit 
and you move between patients in full protective gear. And I think that's not necessarily the case for doctors and other healthcare professionals, nurses, porters, radiographers, etc., working in environments where they don't necessarily know whether the patients they're coming into contact with have COVID and are potentially infectious. Saying that, we have had issues with shortages uh, in my London teaching hospital and have been told that we would need to, on certain days, particularly at the early surge phase of the disease, um, ration our use of PPE and just be mindful about how many, for example, masks or visors or gowns we were going through in a day. Um, I think one of the, the challenges that people have faced is the conflicting messages they've had around PPE. And it's quite difficult to rationalise some of the advice we were getting around PPE, particularly early on. Yeah, it was goggles and then, well, it was no goggles and then you had to then start wearing goggles and visors, wasn't it? Yeah, and some of that, I think, was guided by the emerging evidence. Mm. But a lot of it felt to us, particularly on the front line, as though it was dictated by the availability of PPE, as opposed to any particularly strong evidence base. And I think that has left people feeling quite frustrated and mistrustful. And then when that goes on to become much more political, for example, in counting a single glove as a piece of PPE, as opposed to a pair of gloves, just so you can meet targets for the five o'clock briefing, that is not necessarily the right sort of trustful environment for healthcare professionals yeah I think you make some pretty fair points um zooming out obviously there, there's been some problems with supply chains and things that are more systematic in the NHS and, and around the UK zooming out to a broader view what do you think will be the impact of this crisis on the NHS I think it will be huge <laughs> there's no two ways around it and I, I don't know whether we could break it down and think about how it's going to affect patients Uh, the people that work in the NHS and also organisationally as a whole. So for for patients, there's certainly a growing concern, both within my parent specialty of plastic surgery, but but certainly more more so in other specialties like oncology, of really the immediate harms that patients face Mm. from the cessation of all elective and non-emergency work. And I think that in certain specialties, so speaking to oncology colleagues, the decision to, for example, suspend giving out chemotherapy on the balance of risks and benefits uh, has meant that patients potentially will be exposed to harm in the long run. And I think it's balancing those harms for for them. As professionals, we're working outside of our skill set and that there was a real and genuine concern about what that would mean uh, that was actually met from the outset by advice that we were getting from our regulatory organisations like the General Medical Council or GMC. Do you mean for you psychologically or in, in your career? A little bit of both. Um, so we've seen already the impact that the COVID redeployment has had, for example, in terms of how people are recruited to their higher training and specialties. But I think that people working outside of their specialty are particularly vulnerable to feeling sort of the stress of working there. And there are specialties like anaesthetics or acute medicine that have clear crossover with the intensive care environment. They're familiar with what we might call the knobology of of ventilators, you know, twiddling about with them. But for doctors of all shapes and sizes, all grades and experiences, being drawn into responding to uh, COVID, there was a real concern that they might be 
responsible for patients coming to harm because they don't necessarily have have that skill set. And I think actually one of the one of the sort of salient or memorable quotes or phrases that I heard from a very senior doctor at my trust was he said that the the real concern here or the greatest threat to doctors in the long run is probably not the lack of PPE but potentially the sort of moral injury associated with being in the middle of a global pandemic response and the long-term stress or post-traumatic stress disorder sequelae that we may that we may see in a in a sort of generation of medics working in the NHS. Also we hear a lot about people getting contracting coronavirus and and dying um, unfortunately but you talk about long-term impacts on on healthcare practitioners but what about the long-term impacts on people that actually survive the coronavirus what what do you think those are going to be like? So I think that I should praise my answer by saying that in the ICU, we're obviously seeing and dealing with the most unwell patients. And these ICU patients have the potential to become really unstable and really sick really quite quickly. Mm. I should say, and it's quite reassuring, I suppose, to your listeners, that the overwhelming majority of people, north of 80%, will have a very mild form of disease with no long-term complications Saying that, in the specific population that I'm dealing with, there are patients who it will take many months or even years to recover from. Mm. So we know it's a primarily a respiratory insult, but there are patients who have such significant scarring and fibrosis, even having recovered from coronavirus, that they are essentially candidates almost immediately for lung transplantation. Oh my gosh. There are patients whose kidneys have taken such a sufficient knock that their function doesn't return and they will be long-term dialysis patients or again candidates for kidney transplants. But I think that we're we're sort of learning as we go along. So it will be 10, 20, 30 years before we really understand what the long-term consequences are for patients that have had mild forms of disease, moderate forms of disease or very serious life-threatening forms of the disease. Can you get it twice? (laughs) That's a question to which I honestly don't know the answer. Um, So we know that we can recover from nasopharyngeal aspirates or swabs. So if you swab the back of someone's throat or nose, um, from patients that have recovered from COVID, you can recover the covid rna from them when they don't have symptoms so the so they've got fragments that are still left over in their body but they might not have got it again correct so they're not clinically unwell with a coronavirus infection and what that is thought to represent is potentially as the lungs recover and start to heal themselves they shed the cells that originally contained this virus those are now dead cells and they are gradually brought out of the lungs by the normal mechanisms that clear mucus from your lungs such that you can say, okay, at six or eight weeks, we know there are going to be a proportion of patients that if we retest them, look like they would have a positive coronavirus swab. And that's going to be a problem for when you're retesting a population. With most viruses, and I'm, again, not a virologist, there is some short-term immunity that is probably antibody-mediated, and that underlies the basis for having a sort of antibody test. Whether or not that will last for example, weeks or months or even a few years, has yet to be determined. This is so new. This is maybe six months old as a a disease. But I think that if there is the possibility of being reinfected twice, it will have 
really quite significant implications for how we might go about vaccinating a population mm. and what we would expect that vaccine to look like. There's probably the expectation that we will get something along the lines of a, of a influenza-type vaccine that may need to be administered every year to vulnerable populations. Yeah, and reformulated as well. And reformulated potentially if there's sort of significant divergence in the, in the sort of virus clade or the virus genetics. But whether or not patients, for example, recovering from an acute coronavirus illness who become unwell again have a reinfection or some sort of viral relapse is, isn't, isn't clear yet. Fair enough. Um, in your experience, what's the ratio of people dying to surviving on, on ICU? So ICU-based. So I should again say that there's maybe less than 1% of patients who are getting coronavirus are coming to the intensive care setting. So these are yeah. the most unwell patients. And I haven't looked at the figures in the last few weeks, but when I most recently did... I think for all patients coming to the intensive care environment, it was roughly 40% mortality. So that's four in 10 patients not making it out. And that risk of dying is increased if you require intubation and ventilation. So that's being put in a coma for us to take over breathing with a tube that goes down your throat. And those are pretty scary odds. And when you are meeting patients coming down, for example, for a trial of... um, mask type ventilation knowing that if they fail that they will be going on to invasive or invasive mechanical ventilation having that conversation with them really is quite humbling and they know at that stage that they really are unwell and this may not be something that they are able to recover from Mm. that must have been what boris johnson had to do actually yeah so I, i he seems quite shaken up is all doesn't he I think so. I mean, I I can't speak for the Bojo experience, (laughs) but I think that as a population, perhaps it was minimised, but someone like Boris Johnson... Seeing a 55-year-old get it. Yeah, he is is potentially, you know, an at-risk, within an at-risk vulnerable group. And being moved to the intensive care environment to be delivered high-flow oxygen is a significant step. Yeah. And I think that certainly among doctors in my hospital you know we would sit there and we would say you know actually we're seeing patients like him coming to us in that state that subsequently deteriorate and then don't make it out gosh so scary um there was a lot of talk early on about ibuprofen being the wrong thing to take if you had covid is there any truth in that what was that all about now that is a hard science question to answer um so it's a good one and it's actually one that i pretty regularly get asked by family and friends. And I guess to to understand what the deal is with ibuprofen, you have to go to the science itself. So we know that pathogenic coronaviruses gain access to lung cells in particular by means of a specific cell surface receptor called the angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor, and specifically the ACE2 receptor. So ACE2 is way more catchy, let's just call it that. We'll call it ACE2, I think that's, I think that's a bit better. <laughs> so we know that ibuprofen as a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication upregulates expression of the ACE2 receptor. So there is this theoretical risk that if you express more cell surface receptors, you are going to allow more virus to enter that cell. Okay. And once a virus enters the cell, it has all of the machinery around it, 
to massively replicate and subsequently shed and reinfect other cells. Yeah. But although that has been observed in a laboratory environment, whether that actually matters clinically isn't so clear. So, for example, if you have lots of receptors on the cell already and increase that by a small percentage, actually meaningfully how many more viruses or virus particles are are able to access that cell? Well, presumably it's limited by the amount of viruses in the first place. Potentially. And we don't necessarily know whether that's actually going to have a significant or meaningful impact on endpoints that matter, like long-term morbidity or mortality from the disease. So the question was... From the outset, well, does that matter? And some of the early evidence, for example, in patients who are hypertensive or diabetic where they receive medicines that upregulate your ACE2 expression, like ibuprofen, but in this case, blood blood pressure-lowering medications and um, some medications that help with your kidney function, they had worse outcomes from the disease. And that prompted a review in The Lancet that was taken on board quite seriously by the World Health Organization that put out a statement to the effect of we would not recommend ibuprofen in this patient group, particularly early in the disease course. Interesting. But that has since been retracted. And now the statement, I believe, says there is insufficient evidence. And I guess what I should say, given this is a podcast, is I'm making quotation marks when I, <laughs> when I say that. So there's insufficient evidence to suggest that ibuprofen is associated with a worse outcome in COVID patients. So I guess the one other thing to say is that actually, this is again probably quite sciencey, is that we know that the ACE2 receptor is useful in fighting a number of diseases. So it's intimately involved in the renin angiotensin system. And we know that in acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is a respiratory illness very similar to COVID pneumonitis, that actually it's protective for the lungs. Oh, interesting. So there's this sort of balance. So there's this theoretical risk that actually it can increase your early disease, viral load and viral replication. But balanced against that, in the long term, it may be protective. Overall then, I guess we don't know what, what, what it means. Uh, but for what it's worth, I haven't seen a patient in our hospital that is on ibuprofen. And if you, <laughs> and if you were to ask me, would I recommend it for you? I would, I would say probably avoid. Interesting. Although I think the people that you see are probably a bit past ibuprofen, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a useful drug and it's interesting that we, we don't use it. Okay. Um, how has COVID changed public perceptions of science or I guess I should say the science now as everyone seems to refer to it? So I'd really like to think that we would be able to use this period of time to really engage public or the public with with science and the scientific method. And when you contrast the idiocy of someone like Trump suggesting we might be able to inject bleach with the much more sort of measured responses of Prof Chris Whitty or or Sir Patrick Vallance, I think people are, are visibly confronted by the types of individuals that they may want to sort of lead the mm. country with evidence-based policy. And I think we've got a conversation at the moment about developing a vaccine very quickly, but a notably very quiet anti-vaxxer lobby. (laughs) We have, for the most part, the public really understanding the idea of uncertainty in science and understanding um, how long it takes for things to happen. Yeah, like vaccines. Like, for example, developing a vaccine or a test with 
sufficient sensitivity and specificity. And again, that has been balanced by less sensationalist and simplistic media reporting for the most part. And I think that once this is all settled, it might be an opportunity for us to say, okay, well, let's use the same scientific basis, evidence-based advice and expert panels to guide us in terms of what we do in terms of broader policies on climate change or or social care, for example. So mm. take the framework of evidence-based medicine and, and turn it into a scaffolding for evidence-based policy. Yeah. And um, just to circle around, because obviously we are... Um... We are a podcast of postgraduate students. How has the pandemic affected clinical research, do you think? So I probably should be careful with what I say, but I think that I would be safe in saying that I couldn't overstate the potential harm of this on clinical research very broadly. So as far as I'm aware, all non-COVID related trials have been suspended So that means for there are no patients being recruited to chemotherapy trials. There are no patients being randomised in surgical trials. Um, And I think that there will also be problems for trials that have completed and are in the follow-up phase in terms of how do you assess the data. Yeah, because they'll have a massive mortality spike based on actually they're not trying to measure the mortality of COVID, they're trying to measure the mortality of their intervention. Absolutely. So when you look at an outcome like all-cause mortality, how do you... Separate COVID. How do you square the circle with the coronavirus pandemic? And God forbid being a, <laughs> a medical statistician at the moment. Um, but balanced against that, we've actually seen this amazing response to COVID in terms of how quickly and how, and with such agility, clinical trials can be set up. And I was reading recently that Prof Hornby's Oxford-based recovery trial. Mm. The protocol for that was written in a day and submitted the following day and then approved within a few days. So we've we've seen this amazing agility, both kind of in clinical research, but also organisationally in terms of how do you roll out and deliver these trials. But balanced against that again is, you know, what's the impact on scientists themselves? So I've just finished a set of nights over the weekend and I got talking to one of the healthcare associates um, or healthcare assistants on the wards And she was actually a volunteer and her normal day job is a university researcher, a very senior associate professor who had just said, I want to come and help out. And I was talking to her and she said, well, you know, I've been furloughed. I wanted to come and help. She had a background in, I think, nursing very early on in her career. But for her, I, I think, you know, she was thinking, well, is there a department and a job for me to go back to? And for universities across the country and internationally, they're going to be faced with challenges around around funding. Yeah, we've heard of massive hiring freezes. and, and Yeah, problems with uh, recruitment and retention of staff. And I guess, you know, the angle that your podcast takes on it is looking at not just the science, but also the people behind the science. And my concern would be for, for them as well. Um, do you have any advice to share with us about how we can stay healthy and make the best of these weird, unprecedented times as PhD students? <laughs> unprecedented. That's a word that gets thrown around a lot these days, <laughs> isn't it? Um, I probably should ask you that question, really. Uh, but I, can, I guess I can, I can give a perspective that we have in the NHS where suddenly there has been this, this great focus brought on to pastoral care Mm. and looking after frontline health workers 
And for us, it has felt, you know, genuinely moving that people are willing to, you know, step out and clap on a Thursday evening uh, and to feel very supported by the public generally. And within the hospital, there is now uh, easy access to meditation type apps, to um, staff debriefing sessions or sort of psychology led small groups that talk about and talk through some of the challenges that we might face. And that's not just for doctors, that's for the whole multidisciplinary team. Anyone from a porter to a radiographer to a nurse, I think everyone has those challenges and that is confounded by the challenges that people have in their personal lives at the moment. And for us, what we've been encouraged to do very strongly is really just to talk very openly about some of the difficulties that we might face. And that might be as obvious as, you know, patients die. That's a really unpleasant experience. Having to break bad news over the phone with a relative is something you really wouldn't wish upon someone. But it might just be, you know, just chatting to people and staying sane in this crazy environment where you have to put on masks and gowns and go in and out to this very weird and alien world uh, in a hospital that is otherwise almost deserted. And I guess it's just to to recognise our humanity in that and to to try and sort of do things that, that in our spare time and with family and friends, even remotely, that will keep us healthy and keep us happy. Hmm. I think letting yourself feel supported by people around you is a really powerful thing to do and lots of FaceTiming. There's also some really good resources for people who might be worried about going back to work um, from mine to the mental health charity, you can put into uh, action a plan so that you feel that you have the support in place for going back to work. And we will share that link below this podcast. Um, but thank you so much for your time, Josh. I'm now going to hand over to Julie on the other side of London. Julie, how are you? And what have you planned for the second half of this podcast? Hi, Madeline. Thanks so much for sharing your interview with Josh. That was really interesting, and what a fascinating and difficult job he must have right now. Today, I've got an interview with someone whose work is also intersecting with the coronavirus epidemic in a very interesting way. I'm interviewing Gabriella Masonbuck about her work in metagenomics. So I should point out that Gabriella is not only an esteemed colleague and researcher, but also my flatmate. So we are not violating any social distancing policies by conducting this interview. Gabriella, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to share some of my experiences during COVID and share with you some of the research that I'm doing. We're delighted to have you. Let's have you start by telling us what you regularly do for a job. Yes. So when there's uh, not a pandemic going on, um, I'm a DNA forensic scientist and I'm carrying out a part-time PhD in forensic metagenomics. Wow. I would think that working full-time as a forensic scientist and doing a part-time PhD would present challenges in and of itself. Yeah, it does. So it's really hard to try and find time outside of kind of the working time to actually research. But during the uh, pandemic, I've actually been able to shift a lot of my time onto kind of focusing into the research. And I've really enjoyed uh, making the most of that time. So that is perhaps a strange silver lining to this whole thing, then I suppose. Yeah, you could say that. It is a really nice silver lining um, to be able to actually do something during not such a very nice time. So can you describe for us what some of your research would normally look like not during a pandemic? So the research is usually uh, looking at touch surfaces to see whether we can find um, any DNA. So not just from kind of humans, but can we find any animal DNA, bacterial, viral, etc.? 
And what we've been doing is every year on the 21st of June, so the summer solstice, is we've been going out on the London Underground and actually taking samples to try and find out whether any of the different locations actually show different compositions of these different microbes. Could you explain how this work sits in the field of forensics specifically? So another really important part of the project is can we actually work out from what somebody's touched where they might have been before, during and after a crime event. So that's kind of the forensic aspect of this work. What does your research really look like or what do you do on a practical day-to-day basis? First of all, we carry out kind of a wet swabbing technique. So we wet the swab and we actually swab the surface uh, for about three minutes. And then that goes off for DNA extraction. So that's to extract um, all of the DNA presence from all of these different microbes. And then we carry out next generation sequencing. So sequencing simultaneously all of this DNA. um, And then there's obviously a little data analysis and bioinformatics pipelines that we need at the end to help us make sense of all of this data. What kind of taxa or microbes are you looking for? So a lot of the work that's been carried out previously has been looking at the soil microbes. So the things that kind of live in um, and around soil. So if you look at the crime scene where somebody might have soil on the bottom of their shoes, can we actually work out what location they've been to based on what kind of debris is found? Um, it's also quite good because you can eliminate as well. So you can actually say where they haven't necessarily touched. And the idea with this project is that it's kind of looking for location specific taxa. So if you look at different areas, touched areas across a city, can you actually be able to determine where somebody might have been, what they've touched, maybe before, during and after a crime event? So you're basically trying to create a microbial map of whatever taxa are moving around on people's hands? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Um, So we actually kind of dub this as DNA mapping. So actually looking at the London Underground, for instance, can we map out London based on, say, different uh, regions? So is north different from south? Um, And currently the work that we've been carrying out with the consortium, so the Metagenomics and Metadesign of Urban Biomes, so the Metasub project run by Will Cornell University by Christopher Mason, is that we've actually worked out that different countries can be kind of classified and at the moment we're trying to work out how we can possibly actually classify within a country so are the taxa different based on the different locations and the different tube stops um, on the London Underground for instance. Oh great okay really interesting so I do understand that your research has changed a little bit in light of the current pandemic. Yeah so the work has had to shift slightly um, because before we were kind of just looking at the DNA profiles that we would see and obviously um, COVID isn't RNA virus so there is a different um, extraction method required for RNA viruses. And because we have this ability to do this kind of surveillance, this uh, surveillance on kind of touch surfaces within the environment, as a consortium, the decision was made to kind of shift our priorities onto trying to um, determine if we can find any COVID on any different samples. So what's actually changed is that we have shifted to actually go out and do some sampling on some shopping trolley handles and some cash machines. So some really kind of high level touch areas just to see if we can find any um, COVID present on any of these surfaces. And when you say surveillance... Should I be worried that you and the government are tracking me through all the microbes on my hand? Yeah, no, definitely not. Um, So what we mean by surveillance is if there is, say, another outbreak, another pandemic, could we actually try and detect this much sooner? So if we were to carry out seasonal sampling, so spring, summer, winter, autumn sampling, could we actually try to pre-determine what kind of strains, for instance, of the flu, the influenza virus might be available or might be um, most prevalent for that year. And then obviously, hopefully, that could help with creating vaccines, etc. 
So are you and your team developing new methods for looking at both RNA and DNA, given what you're looking at? Yeah, so interestingly enough, we've had to. So we've kind of had to come up with an extraction method that uh, can simultaneously extract DNA and RNA. RNA is a lot more sensitive, um, so it needs kind of a more sensitive extraction method. Um, and we lose a lot of this information with some of the previous methods that we've been using. And what's really good about this is actually moving forward, we will continue to um, dual extract both DNA and RNA, and that will give us a much larger data set and database for the information that we're obtaining from the samples that we've collected. The tests that you guys are running are not the same as what I think of as a diagnostic test for COVID. So the difference between this test and the kind of COVID diagnostic testing is that the COVID diagnostic testing is using a real-time PCR technique. So that's kind of looking specifically for the COVID virus. Um, And the method that I'm actually carrying out with the team is a sequencing method. So we will be able to identify COVID, hopefully the different strains, etc. But we'll also be able to look at all of the other different RNA viruses, etc. out there simultaneously. So when we're hearing about all this uh, COVID testing on the news, that's usually a real-time test that's different from the shotgun PCR that you're doing. Yeah, so it's very specific. It's specifically just looking at um, trying to identify COVID. Obviously, it needs to be quite a quick, a quick, rapid kind of test to um, identify. And it's usually used for individual identification. So if somebody's had one of these swab tests um, to try and work out whether they, they are positive for COVID. The method we're using, uh, this kind of shotgun sequencing technique, actually just looks at all of the DNA presence. So it kind of chops up your DNA and then puts it all back together in a kind of bioinformatics phase at the end. But you do think that you will be able to detect the specific COVID targets at the end? Yeah, so we are hoping that by the end, um, we'll be able to look and actually work out what kind of strains of COVID were present. So the technique that's used for um, currently just the very basic kind of swabbing technique is just saying, yes, COVID was present. No, COVID is not present. Whereas this technique will actually be looking at the strains and then maybe we can try and track back where these strains have originated from. How has it been trying to actually do the research on a day-to-day basis in the current challenging climate? So some of the challenges have included uh, being able to get access into the workplace. We're based in central London, so uh, transport, travel, also authorization to actually get into the building. So having to be put on kind of an essential workers list. Uh, The samples that I'm taking, although they're pretty stable in the solution that we use, which is... um, Zymo RNA DNA shield. RNA viruses are very uh, susceptible to uh, degradation and change. So I've been having to make sure that I get them frozen as soon as possible. So kind of getting into work and getting that done has been a bit of a challenge. Going out and doing the sampling. So just kind of making sure that I'm being safe while I'm doing so. So obviously wearing my gloves and wearing a face mask. And what's quite interesting is that when we carry out the sampling every year on the Global City Sampling Day on the 21st of June, we're all out there. I have a huge team that goes out, about 35 um, individuals go out and we're all kind of wearing gloves. And previously, the public um, found that a little bit unsettling. But obviously now I don't look out of place because everybody's wearing gloves, everybody's wearing face masks. So actually taking the samples has been relatively um, straightforward. Yeah. How has the public reacted to your collecting swabs during the situation right now? So it's quite interesting, actually. Um, I've had some really interesting questions. So some people think that using the tiny little swabs that I'm actually cleaning the surfaces with those. Um, But I am making sure that after I'm taking the swabs that I'm using a disinfectant wipe. And actually, some members of the public have actually come up to kind of thank me for kind of cleaning the trolleys and cleaning the surfaces for them. Do they think you're working for the grocery store and performing some sort of public service? 
Yeah, I think they probably do. Um, I do have discussions about what kind of the project is if they come up and ask, but obviously it's quite hard. I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is trying to explain the research to individuals. So when you've got a face mask on um, and somebody else has got a face mask on, that communication is lost a little bit. Do you guys have any early results to share? Have you gotten any data back thus far? So um, the sampling was obviously carried out by New York first, and they haven't actually found any COVID um, in present within their samples presently. And that was using this kind of qPCR or this lamp technique, which was the color changing a method. Um, but we're hoping that now the samples are being sent for sequencing, we might be able to have a, a much more in-depth analysis of the samples that we've got. And we're just awaiting the first results from those. So you're clearly at the early stages. Yeah, it's really early stages of kind of this shift towards RNA sequencing. So no London data yet? No data back on the London samples yet. I know that they're at the sequencing facility and we are expecting um, data and results back within the next few weeks. What do you and the rest of the consortium plan to do with the data once you get it? Well, when we get the data back, obviously our first aim will be to look to see if there is any COVID. Um, Also to see if we can do any kind of strain identification um, to try and work out which strains are present in the samples. As I said, this is across the world. So there's lots of different um, cities being included in this study. And it'll be really interesting to see the different strains. Post-pandemic, we will then do a much more in-depth data analysis of the different RNA viruses and DNA that we've actually obtained within these samples. Is there a plan to publish this, put this data out there, make it accessible to people? Yeah, so our main aim would be as soon as we find anything, we would like to kind of share this with the community. So as soon as we possibly can. And I know that lots of journals are being very open to COVID research and trying to get that out into publication for the wider community as soon as possible. Are there concerns about publishing in this climate? Is there a rush to get information out there? Yes, I think there are. Um, And we have to be very careful here. We have to make sure that if we are stating that COVID has been found in our samples, that that's true. um, And we're not just publishing too early. In the early days of the kind of Metasub projects, there was a publication released in the very, very early days, one of the first publications. And the headlines kind of read anthrax found on the New York underground. Um, And the problem with this is, is yes, there was anthrax found within the samples. It wasn't a high component. Um, And actually, it's something that's quite commonly used in agriculture. So actually, seeing a low level of anthrax is quite common. But it all depends on how you word things and how you put it out there for the public to interpret. And the last thing that we want to be doing in such a difficult time is fear mongering and scaring anybody. How does the testing that you're doing relate to, say, the virus spreading or some of the contact tracing that we've been hearing about in the news or that might be conducted in light of the pandemic? So um, the viruses that we're likely to obtain from our sampling um, are actually likely to be dead. So they're likely not to be infectious. Uh, This is because Uh, RNA viruses are actually not very stable once they're kind of outside the human body. So we won't actually be able to kind of determine how this is going to impact infection rate, but potentially we can actually look at how many individuals in that location might have been affected at the time. Um, But that also depends on how likely and how readily somebody shared, did they sneeze on top of um, the cash machine at the time that they were taking out cash? So actually, we can't really determine how infectious this virus will be. But there are lots of other scientists carrying out um, studies on the reproducibility and the rate of actually um, the virus spreading to other individuals.
So those of us in touch DNA who've been spending time looking at touched objects may need to sort of shift our understanding and, and broaden our idea of, of what we're looking for and what sort of samples types we should be using. Yeah, I think that's the great part about science uh, is that we keep coming up with these new questions. Um, so if we look at mobile phones, there was a study carried out on mobile phones um, and how each of us have a different kind of microbiome. So that's all of the um, bacteria, viruses, etc. that live in and on an individual. And by looking at the mobile our phones they could be linked back to the individual so actually yeah we are going to have to start looking at different ways of um, studying touch samples so potentially yes to look at the RNA viruses etc um, and how they transfer so what's the rate of transfer do different people transfer at different rates etc and one great part of all of this is is actually working within a consortium is that you get views and input from all different individuals. So in the Meta Sub Consortium, we have doctors, we have bioinformaticians, we have forensics people, we have scientists, all kind of trying to get their heads together to answer some of these questions. And to be fair, we've still got a really long way to go. Well, I think that sounds like a good place to wrap up for today. Gabriella, thank you for being here and talking to us about your research. Thank you for having me. That brings us to the end of a very special lockdown edition of Postocalypse. I want to thank Madeline and her partner Josh for their interview earlier. I want to thank my flatmate Gabriella, and thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it, and I hope everybody is doing okay out there and handling lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic as best they can. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.